Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. I am Alexey Chabotarev, a postdoctoral fellow at the New Europe College Institute for Advanced Studies, Bucharest. This series is a part of Institute of Historical Research Centennial Commemorations, our century looking back, thinking forward and has been organized by the Basis Study Group for Minority History. It was made possible through the help and support of British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Barton Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeast Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. In today's episode, Johannan Petrovsky-Stern, the Crown Family Professor of Jewish Studies and Professor of Jewish History in the History Department at Northwestern University, talks to us about the Jewish communities in the late Russian Empire and the Soviet Union and the challenges in framing this history. Johanan, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling our audience a little about yourself and how you became interested in this particular aspect of history? Well, um, I believe I started my career as a scholar of comparative literature, and I was teaching in East Europe for about five years, a little bit more as a uh, associate professor of uh, uh, comparative literature. I taught courses in uh, the history of uh, the uh, modern novel from Cervantes to Thomas Mann. I was teaching the introduction into um, aesthetics um, and of course, uh, theory of literature from uh, Plato to Lotman, many other courses. Um, and that was in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Uh, then uh, things happened in my life uh, and I uh, had a kind of a reawakening uh, due to which I decided to leave uh, the area of literary studies and move uh, from um, a kind of a mytholo mythological um, uh, secluded environment uh, of literary texts uh, into the study of uh, linear uh, historical events. They are, as I realized much later, uh, not necessarily um, um, uh, linear. They can take uh, different forms and uh, different vectors. But I moved into history. Um, I had um, in the uh, mid-1990s um, a kind of uh, uh, intermediary period when um, I was more interested in things uh, connected to sociolinguistics. Sociolinguistics brought me to the discovery of uh, uh, de newly declassified Judaica uh, manuscripts um, at different depositories in uh, the post-communist um, uh, world um, of uh, um, Russian Federation, um, uh, Lithuania, uh, Belarusia, uh, Poland, and Kiev. And then um, uh, these manuscripts uh, turned me once again uh, 90 degrees uh, to the uh, historical, um, to, 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 I would say, things historical. And uh, since mid-1990s, I consider myself a historian who is studying um, uh, the uh, uh, different aspects of East European Jewish history. 
Thank you. Uh, for benefit of our listeners, how would you generally define the Jewish population in the late Russian Empire and the Soviet Union? Why has the concept of minority has uh, been applied so widely to the Jews, even though we know from your and other studies that they were often not a minority in the communities where they lived? Well, um, if we look at statistics and demography, we will realize uh, that uh, in the entire region of uh, Galicia, uh, Jews constituted approximately 13%. But if we look at specific towns, uh, be it um, uh, Kolomea um, uh, or Stanislaviv, uh, or for example, um, uh, Lviv, um, and of course, um, if we move from uh, bigger towns to smaller towns to, uh, let's say, Drohobych to Bells, we'll find out a very interesting um, curve, so to say, on the diagram uh, that shows uh, 30%, 40%, 45% of Jewish population. So what kind of minority we are talking about? Well, um, Jews have been um, an exterritorial uh, exterritorial population. That is to say, they are not associated with any kind of uh, state boundaries in the 18th, 19th century. Therefore, uh, the only way at that time to characterize them was to look at them at minority, at, 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 at as the minority. However, we have to um, uh, resort to the um, 18th century scholars who discussed uh, uh, the uh, private Polish towns that, that were later called Shtetlach, Shtetls, um, and these historians, uh, such as Moshe Rossmann, Gershon Hundred, Adam Teller, um, have written in their books uh, that Jews in uh, these private Polish towns constituted um, anywhere from um, 25 to 70%. So of course they are not a minority, but because they are exterritorial, uh, the word minority was applied to them. The study of minority of that type of exterritorial um, uh, ethno-national group uh, is extremely complex because um, it requires a deep knowledge of uh, the context, of uh, urban context, if we look at uh, Lviv, uh, Lviv, Lemberg, um, um, and it would be uh, the context of the Austrian Empire. Uh, sometimes we need to look at the Polish context if we are talking about, let's say, uh, uh, Rivne, uh, Berdichev, um, or uh, Ostroch. Uh, in, uh, if we move uh, forward, we would need uh, the context uh, of um, um, Soviet state. Uh, and before the Russian Empire. So, so we need to constantly shift the context. We are looking at, for example, one of the same uh, Jewish ethnonational group uh, living in an urban environment from the 16th century to the 21st century. And we do see that um, this ethnonational group changes uh, the context in which it operates and um, the, uh, my, the majority with which it interacts over four or five centuries. The knowledge of this context is uh, absolutely crucial. And to continue this talk about uh, changes, I also would like to ask you about the diversity and divisions among Jewish communities in Eastern Europe. There is, of course, some common understanding of religious, language, class, and other diversities inside Jewish communities. Uh, but could you please tell us more about how it functions on the micro level of shtetl and uh, 
what actually happened to this Jewish diversity with the advent of the Soviet state. Well, uh, there are uh, three caveats we have to take into consideration. One is what time we are talking about. If we are talking about 18th century, we'll have one type of division. If we are talking about early 20th century, it'll be the, 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 a very different one. So uh, we also have to take into consideration the geographic area where this ethnational group is residing. And third, uh, we need to know um, uh, how we approach uh, this uh, minority. We look at the, at the class, or we look at gender, or we look at religious denominations, and so on. Um, I would say that if we look at uh, the 18th century, or early 19th century, uh, the uh, time period that I uh, studied uh, and about which I wrote a book, The Golden Age Tattle, um, I would say that um, the uh, ethno-national Jewish communities are uh, located um, in the territory controlled by the Russian Empire or in the territory controlled by the Austrian Empire. So uh, this is uh, due to the partitions of Poland uh, by um, um, Prussia, uh, Russia, and uh, Austria uh, from 1772 till 1795. Um, uh, we also have, uh, at that time, uh, Jews residing in Poland proper, but Poland proper doesn't exist as an independent country. Uh, after the 1775, 1795, which means that um, we can talk about uh, Polish Jewish. Um, um, areas of residence within the Russian Empire. So, uh, looking at the divisions within the um, within different uh, Jewish localities, I would say that from the class perspective, uh, we are dealing with um, uh, first and foremost um, ten to fifteen percent of paupers, uh, about. Uh, 60% of um, uh, people who are in retail trade and um, uh, different types of artisanry, um, and uh, well, 60% up to 80%, and uh, not more than 5% of the Jewish oligarchy, uh, who, which is composed of um, international merchants, uh, Jews who are in finance, uh, purveyors of the army, um, and um, um, other types of um, the uh, nascent uh, Jewish bourgeoisie. Uh, of course, the more we move into the uh, uh, 19th century, uh, the more robust uh, the um, uh, upper class uh, becomes, um, and uh, the more um, is the tendency of the middle class uh, to pauperize and uh, look for uh, the blue collar employment uh, in the uh, in bigger urban areas. Um, so uh, this is kind of a Marxist approach uh, to the uh, divisions within the Jewish community. And of course, uh, this is all, uh, um, um, I would say, um, uh, kind of a first approximation. We need really to zoom in and see the enormous difference uh, between uh, different towns. Um, I would say if we look at Rachmistrivka, which is a shtetl, and at Berdichev, which is a shtetl, we'll find out that uh, uh, from our today's perspective, um, a uh, town that has 40,000 people would be considered um, um, a uh, town or a city, whereas in the documents, Berdichev still 
figures as the private Polish town. It was in the possessions of Radzivills until the 1860s. Um, and so demographically, statistically, um, it, it is uh, without uh, any doubt a town, maybe a small city, but uh, on paper, it appears as, as a shtetl. So um, what do we do with that? We just acknowledge uh, that particular demographic statistical difference that needs to be taken into consideration when we talk about um, you know, Jewish settlement. On the other hand, we do have religious divisions and religious divisions are quite interesting and very much in, uh, misunderstood. So uh, the uh, last quarter of the 18th century uh, saw an enormous expansion of um, the um, uh, trend known as Hasidism, uh, which is uh, one of the um, uh, religious, one of the trends of religious enthusiasm uh, that uh, really had uh, their uh, enormous impact on the life of uh, uh, Jews and non-Jews in the late 17th, early uh, 18th century Europe. Um, so uh, the Jewish trend, Hasidism, um, uh, of religious enthusiasm is part of that uh, all European pietistic movement. Uh, Hasidism um, uh, really, according to the scholars um, um, of the previous generation, split the Jewish community into the so-called mitnagdim, those who were against uh, Hasidic movement and uh, Hasidim who were into this uh, pious, enthusiastic religiosity. And uh, for, um, I would say, 100 years, um, historians were telling us, well, uh, we have uh, Hasidim, uh, pietistic Jews on the one hand, and uh, their uh, more rational opponents on the other. Uh, the first were mostly in uh, Galicia, um, crown of Poland and uh, Polish kingdom, excuse me, and uh, the uh, southern part of the pale of Jewish settlement in the Russian empire, Volhynia, Podolia, and so on. Uh, whereas the Mitnagdim, uh, another group was um, in uh, Lithuania, um, in what today is Lithuania, at least, and, and partially Belarusia. Um, and, and, and there, of course, um, um, these historians who are basing their models on the Hegelian vision of uh, um, the history of ideas, they saw the Jewish community as split between these two groups. When you actually look at what is going on at the grassroots level, you'll see that the situation is much more complex. And uh, the majority population is neither Hasidic nor uh, Misnagdic um, and uses um, the um, religious authorities in uh, both realms uh, for their benefit. A person can use uh, the um, prayer book uh, that is um, Ashkenazic, that is to say, uh, does not reflect the influence of the pietistic uh, trend in Judaism, but uh, when uh, a person has uh, a, a sick relative, um, this person would uh, take a note and go to a tzaddik, to the uh, Hasidic master, asking for his blessing, asking for his um, intervention on the behalf of the uh, sick person before the Almighty, which means that um, um, the person uh, kind of uh, finds uh, his or her way um, in between the two trends, um, and um, um, it is um, an interesting comparison that one of my uh, uh, mentors at Hebrew University, uh, Shaul Stamfer, uh, used to describe the situation. He was saying, um, we thought that uh, Jews can eat either milk or fish, uh, either, either milk or meat, that is to say to be either uh, misnagdic or Hasidic, but actually the uh, most population was parv. Parv is a Hebrew word that designates 
um, the product, the produce that is neither uh, dairy nor uh, nor uh, flesh, no 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 meat. Uh, so the majority population was this parv uh, uh, population uh, that uh, did not. Uh, uh, attach itself to any of the camps. So uh, this is uh, the traditional religious divisions within a shtetl um, in the 18th and most of the 19th century. Uh, we have to take into consideration that the trends that also had a sweeping effect on the Jewish life in, um, in the Germanic lands um, um, and in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, the, uh, I, I mean, for first and foremost, uh, the uh, reform um, and later conservative Judaism, these trends had uh, uh, little, if uh, any, impact on the Jews in the Russian Empire. There were attempts to establish um, uh, reform uh, synagogues um, uh, that were called uh, progressive um, in uh, the um, Austrian Galicia uh, or uh, uh, reform synagogues um, and communities that also called progressive uh, in uh, St. Petersburg um, and Odessa, they did not bring uh, any results. So schools um, in the 19th century could have been uh, closer to progressive Judaism, but uh, the congregations appeared uh, only um, outside the Russian empire. There were zero uh, progressive congregations in the Russian empire. Um, uh, for a variety of reasons, but uh, that particular uh, important division of Jews into conservative reform and uh, uh, traditional that were later called Orthodox does not exist in the Russian Empire. So we can talk about other differences. We can talk about uh, 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 gender uh, functions in the Jewish community, but it will be for another conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And... Uh... To the uh, second part of my question, so how you can briefly describe what actually happened uh, with Sovietization of this land? So uh, is it uh, some immediate changes that happened, or we also can see some long, uh, some lasting dynamic uh, with, with this uh, particular diversity and divisions among Jewish communities? Well, if we look at uh, the um, uh, Great War as the uh, moment of separation of the previous uh, uh, life of the Jewish communities uh, and uh, what came later, uh, we need to acknowledge that we are dealing with, with several areas. Uh, first, um, um, we have uh, robust Jewish communities in uh, now independent Poland. Um, uh, there are uh, very significant Jewish communities um, that are on... Uh, uh, Czechoslovakian territory and in um, uh, in Austria, and, and of course uh, most of them uh, uh, appeared in the Russian uh, uh, Empire territory that now, after the uh, Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, uh, found themselves um, on the territory of uh, what would be after 1922 the Soviet Union. So, um, as we know, the Soviets started um, a uh, devastating um, anti-religious uh, campaign. Uh, published the journal Bezbozhnik, uh, which is known in, uh, under the title Epikoiris uh, in the Yiddish world, Yiddish-speaking world. So uh, the Russian authorities basically um, introduced changes uh, on all levels uh, that, uh, that, that, were, um, uh, that they were targeting Jewish community um, and, and in general traditional communities in the Russian empire, not only the Jews. And uh, this campaign um, ended up uh, um, 
influencing uh, the Jews in different ways. Well, religiously, I would say the Hebrew language was outlawed um, and uh, from any kind of schooling and Yiddish was imposed uh, on uh, the Jews as the language of democratic uh, Marxist-minded proletarians. Um, uh, hundreds of synagogues were closed and only one synagogue was allowed to exist in, um, uh, in a big town, uh, which means that uh, many Jewish uh, um, uh, religious, or religious people had to move uh, to underground, uh, teach and pray um, you know, uh, at home, uh, risking uh, their freedom uh, because of their religious activities. Um, on the level of, um, uh, I would say, um, uh, literary artistic activity, uh, the 1920s um, cannot be compared to the 1930s because Jews moving into big urban um, um, centers uh, really became extremely visible as uh, um, editors of the newspapers, as uh, writers, and as people who are going to the masses and reading their uh, literary works to them. So uh, you have um, uh, this particular uh, uh, explosion of Jewish uh, literary and um, cultural uh, and artistic activity uh, uh, that um, my colleague uh, Kenneth Moss uh, called uh, the um, uh, Jewish Renaissance in the Russian Revolution, right? But all of that um, ends up in the 1930s uh, because the um, uh, national communist trends uh, that were um, uh, command uh, that, that were found commendable um, in uh, different minority groups in the 1920s. Uh, that particular trend, that particular uh, vision of uh, national communism, uh, was uh, curtailed, uh, disrupted, and people who represented it were uh, basically executed. So uh, um, we do see a, a very important um, attempt um, of the Soviet system of. Uh, um, in social engineering um, that was trying to uh, establish uh, new Jewish elites um, in the 1920s to channel the communist idea to the masses. And once this idea you know, captivated the masses and galvanized Jewish masses, um, um, uh, the uh, Soviets started to get rid of the elites uh, on different levels uh, in order to uh, uh, more forcefully uh, introduce a Soviet type of assimilation. So this assimilation um, in the uh, 1930s through the 1980s um, uh, brought about uh, quite a number of, uh, I would say, uh, devastating um, consequences uh, for the Jews, one of which is uh, basically the conversion of a Jew into a homo sovieticus. And uh, Homo Sovieticus is uh, a person without ethnonational roots. Homo Sovieticus is a person who is inscribed uh, into the um, uh, Soviet, Soviet type consumerism. And Homo Sovieticus is a person who is uh, loyal uh, to the uh, Soviet state, Soviet uh, you know, symbols, um, and uh, Soviet glorious past connected first and foremost to the um, um, Second World War, uh, which it was called in the Soviet Union Great Patriotic War. So uh, when we are talking about uh, Soviet Jews of the uh, 1970s, 1980s, 
these are people who are absolutely split uh, or, uh, for, from their you know, traditional uh, Judaic values, and they are more Soviet people than uh, the Jewish minority in the Soviet Union. That is the result of enforced assimilation that the Soviets were conducting starting from the late 1920s. I can talk more about that uh, and emphasize um, uh, economic and other aspects, but from the point of view of uh, uh, religious aspects, this is, I think, what is what is going on. Thank you. Thank you for this broad but still very insightful overview. Uh, uh, and uh, coming a bit back in time, uh, so you mentioned uh, one of your major publications, the Golden Age title, uh, which was interestingly not only influential in academic circles, but very much uh, noticeable for non-academic uh, audience. And in this regard, uh, could you please shed some light uh, for our audience as to why uh, scholars consider the shtetl uh, to be such an important historical phenomenon? And uh, how can you explain this lasting presence of the shtetl and its associated myths uh, in mass culture and historical imagination? Well, uh, before the uh, period uh, modernization kicks in, um, in the, um, um, let's say, if we are talking about uh, the Russian Empire in the mid 19th century, uh, before that time, uh, most of the Jews uh, live in uh, those private Polish towns um, uh, that are hundreds of them you'll see on the map, anywhere from uh, the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea area, and um, anywhere from Smolensk to, to um, let's say, Poznan. Um, and uh, the fact that uh, the majority of Jews lives in this area reshapes our vision of who Jews are uh, culturally, um, uh, ethno-nationally, uh, politically, uh, socially, and economically. Um, uh, let's not forget that two-thirds of the world Jewry um, in the um, 17th, 18th century lives in East Europe. Uh, so uh, in that territory uh, that would be later called the Pale of Jewish Settlement, 15 provinces um, in the western part of the Russian Empire, plus the Kingdom of Poland. Uh, so if two-thirds of the world Jewry lives in that particular place, and the majority of those who live there live in the Shtetlach, in those Polish private towns, um, it means that the Shtetl um, uh, is an example of a quintessential Jewish um, uh, residence, quintessential Jewish dwelling. And then the shtetl phenomenon is associated with the entire um, East European uh, uh, Jewry. Therefore, when the shtetl is um, uh, destroyed in the First World War, and uh, then uh, uh, practically wiped out um, uh, in course of the Second World War, the shtetl is no more exist existing in its um, uh, with its uh, infrastructure, its Jews, uh, its um, uh, elementary and um, uh, different other types of education, uh, with its um, um, uh, ethnographic traditions and so on and so forth. Which means that um, uh, the shtetl is no more there. But the shtetl in the 18th century uh, represented uh, the place, the locus, uh, where uh, most of the Jews uh, live um, at that time. Um, and um, therefore, scholars consider the shtetl 
um, as uh, the phenomenon that they call, and I call, uh, the Atlantis uh, of, uh, of the Jewish world. So this Atlantis disappeared. But when we look back at it, uh, we are interested in the archaeology of the Atlantis, in the sociolinguistics of the Atlantis, in the uh, economic aspects of the Atlantis, in the connection between the Atlantis and the, uh, and the so to say, outer space, uh, the, the surrounding world. Um, in the um, hierarchies of uh, the community in this Atlantis. So we are talking about the revival um, um, of, uh, or reconstruction, I would say, of uh, that particular Jewish Atlantis that allows us to uh, look at what Jews were, um, majority, what the majority of Jews were anywhere from uh, late um, uh, 14th century uh, till the mid 20th century. Um, so it's also very, it's also, you know, various from place to place. Um, I would say if you were talking about uh, Pinsk, we are talking about 700 years of Jewish presence. If you were talking about Ostroch, we are talking about 400 years of Jewish presence. So, uh, you know, uh, that particular uh, time span uh, doesn't change uh, that idea that I mentioned, that when we talk about the shtetl, we are talking about uh, the um, place where absolute majority of Jews lives in the 17th, 18th, um, and 19th century. Of course, 19th century, late 19th century and rapid Russian industrialization, um, um, uh, when Russia is trying to catch up with uh, the West after Prusso-Frank uh, uh, war, um, uh, that particular period of time uh, pushes Jews out of the shtetlach into the big urban uh, centers, and uh, they settle in uh, uh, Gomel, uh, in Minsk, uh, in Odessa, in uh, Dvinsk, um, in, in Luj. Um, and uh, that changes the dynamics within the Jewish world. And um, uh, basically, we are witnessing the creation of the uh, uh, big Jewish enclaves in uh, the late 19th, um, early 20th century um, urban uh, centers. Jewish life in the centers is very different uh, from uh, the Jewish life in the shtetls, and that is kind of a new era. We are talking about an urbanized Jew uh, who is, um, um, as they put it in the 19th century, um, a, a Jew at home um, and, um, and a human being in the street. Uh, that very much changes also the outlook, uh, the uh, modus vivendi, um, uh, of uh, the Jews in uh, both um, on, in the territories controlled by uh, uh, by um, Austria, in the territories controlled by uh, Czechoslovakia or Poland, uh, the Russian Empire, and the Soviet Union. So um, that is already a new urban Jew uh, who sees himself. Um, as a person who rejects his previous shtetl um, um, outlook, uh, ridicules it, uh, writes about it, satirical works, um, and uh, tries to establish himself or herself as a person of the city, not as a, as a person of the shtetl. Thank you. That's extremely interesting, but uh, I think we have to move to the second part of our conversation uh, in which I would like to talk uh, about uh, your research experience and uh, maybe you will agree to share some professional self-reflection with our listeners. And uh, in 
already mentioned context of uh, Jewish intersectionality and this complex history of relations with surrounding communities and different political systems. Uh, what is your research strategy in creating a meta-narrative for stories of these Jewish individuals you study? Well, um, uh, look, um, I need to argue with the way you formulated the question. Um, I never look at meta-narratives. I despise meta-narratives. I think they can be used in the last two sentences of uh, your research paper uh, article or a book. Uh, you can just point to a meta-narrative saying that it is wrong. Uh, most meta-narratives are wrong. Um, and for myself, um, the moment I started to get interested in uh, historical research, I was very much interested in micro-history. And the more I was zoomed in, the better was the result. Uh, uh, therefore, um, I, would, um, I would say that there are people who can write excellent meta-narratives, um, um, Timothy Snyder um, uh, in uh, terms of the 20th century, um, Europe uh, and others, um, I can, uh, I probably, maybe I can write a meta-narrative, but I'm really not interested and I built myself for the last 25 years as a person who works um, uh, in the uh, methodological realm of, uh, let's say, Carlo Ginzburg, uh, the Annal School, um, uh, and uh, of course, um, I'm orienting my uh, scholarship looking at Mark Bloch at uh, uh, Le Roi Le Dury, um, uh, and um, other um, uh, towering figures uh, of the Annals School, uh, which means that I'm emphasizing uh, micro-history, not micro-history, and meta-narrative belongs to macro-history, not micro-history. Um, I started my career um, uh, when um, I was invited to um, create an inventory of uh, um, Jewish manuscripts um, and books in different languages, um, Judaica books um, at the declassified, uh, humongous declassified collection of books and manuscripts at the uh, Vernadsky Library of the uh, National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine. And I spent uh, two and a half years um, uh, selecting for myself um, uh, a bunch of manuscripts that were called Pinkasim, that is to say the record books of Jewish communities, uh, with only one caveat. Uh, these were not the record books of the communities, but rather record books of the societies, voluntary Jewish societies uh, that um, uh, were uh, focused on uh, this or that particular mitzvah, on this or that particular commandment that the group belonging to the society was trying to um, emphasize, promote, um, and and uh, bring to practice. So I was sitting and rewriting, copying these manuscripts by hand. Uh, and uh, uh, I was um, learning Hebrew. I was learning paleography. I was learning rabbinics. I was learning um, uh, the um, social uh, life of the Jewish uh, shtetl-based world by just copying and analyzing this in Kasim, this record books of the Jewish um, uh, communities and societies. Uh, the collection that I was working uh, uh, on at the time had about um, 85 to 90 um, of those Pinkasim. Um, these are thick um, manuscripts. Um, and uh, when I was 
doing that, I realized that I'm interested precisely in that particular point, working with specific community in a specific town and uh, looking at things that uh, other people were never uh, looking at because nobody had access to these manuscripts. And thus, these manuscripts changed my life. So um, uh, instead of uh, uh, teaching um, uh, theory of literature from Plato to Lotman, uh, I came to uh, um, uh, discuss, um, uh, let's say, um, a little... Uh, a small town or a Jewish traditional society acting in one of the Russian regiments after the conscription of Jews in 1827. One of my friends who knows and reads my translations of Borges, Cortázar, García Márquez, other writers, and who knows, you know, that I'm when I'm working as a literary scholar, um, I'm uh, really working on uh, huge uh, themes, uh, new Latin American narrative, um, Anglo-Catholic tradition in English literature, and so on and so forth. So he told me uh, how crazy you should be to uh, exchange, uh, to, to replace Borges uh, with uh, uh, those uh, uh, disgusting, um, uh, you know, record books uh, who nobody needs and who nobody reads. Uh, and... Um, I laughed, but basically what I was doing, I was doing precisely that. I was doing, um, uh, I was leaving the world of meta narratives, going to the world of uh, micro histories, and, and I'm still there. And uh, when people ask me why I do not write a book about the shtetl, let's say, Berdichev, uh, that is established in the early 16th century, bringing it to today, uh, you can do that, they tell me. Uh, I'm saying I'm not doing that. There are plenty of people who do write excellent meta narratives uh, and create them and recreate them. Let them do that. I have my little shtick, and I'm uh, uh, and I'm kind of uh, uh, cleaving to a micro historical approach. Thank you, thank you. Uh, let's now talk uh, about uh, the more traditional research field, their functions and limitations, and how scholars can influence or be influenced by their specific area of scholarship. Many of your works can be identified as uh, the history of Russian Jewry. At the same time, you are also one of the few scholars promoting Ukrainian Jewish studies as developing research field. So how do you uh, position yourself professionally? Well, um, if I write a book about uh, Russian Jewry, um, it doesn't mean that I write about Russian Jewry. I mean that uh, in, in the context, uh, let's say, of the uh, 19th century, um, early 19th century, late 19th century, we are talking about Jews in the Russian Empire. So these are not necessarily Jews that are Russian Jews. They are, these are Jews of Russia. If some of them become Russian Jews um, uh, and are acculturated into the imperial milieu, uh, uh, that would be a different story, but I'm talking about uh, Jews who are Russian, who, who are Jews in Russia. That is saying, I'm talking about geographic uh, uh, um, kind of loyalty or geographic uh, association. When I'm talking about Ukrainian Jews, um, uh, I'm discussing uh, an absolute minority, uh, tiny minority in the um, late nineteenth, uh, early twentieth century, that are uh, that have a tendency to associate themselves with Ukraine, and that can be. Um, um, anybody uh, from, uh, uh, let's say, Hritsko uh, Kornerenko, who starts uh, a Jew from Hulaipole, um, 
uh, town who starts writing um, in Ukrainian language and up to Jabotinsky who writes in Russian but associates himself with the uh, Ukrainian uh, uh, national um, revival. Uh, so um, yes, uh, in many cases I'm talking about uh, Ukrainian Jews uh, in my uh, in my you know uh, recent books, but I'm not talking about Ukrainian Jews um, uh, associating Jews. Um, all of them uh, with the uh, Ukrainian statehood. Uh, I'm talking about Jews of Ukraine. Um, of course, among them are Jews who are cleaving to Ukrainian culture, and I am discussing these Jews. But th these are also a minority, a minority that, um, that had to be seen uh, against the backdrop of the Jews who are homo sovieticus wherever they are, in Georgia, in, uh, the Russian, uh, in, in, in Russia proper, or in Ukraine. Uh, finally, I would say, um, uh, regarding you know, my work on Ukrainian Jews, uh, that uh, uh, Jews who are Ukrainian Jews, they are, of course, uh, a minority among you know, the greater Jewish population. But uh, look, uh, uh, among Ukrainians, you have the same. Uh, Ukrainians in the, uh, 19th, in, the, in the 19th and 20th century uh, who are uh, you know, conscious of their uh, uh, Ukrainian um, uh, roots and who build themselves as uh, uh, an ethno-national group of Ukrainians uh, cognizant of its um, uh, Ukrainian association. Um, these people are absolute minority also among Ukrainians. Uh, Ukraine um, uh, was uh, deeply uh, colonized um, and uh, russified, and uh, only uh, the um, uh, events of uh, 2004, Orange Revolution, 2014, uh, Revolution of Dignity, really uh, shook the Ukrainian world uh, and uh, brought uh, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians uh, to that position when they associate themselves precisely with uh, Ukrainian national values. So that particular change um, also shows that Ukrainians who are associating themselves uh, who, who, who see themselves as Ukrainian Ukrainians, not just geographically located uh, uh, group, they are also in minority. So I do not see any kind of difference between, let's say, Ukrainian Ukrainians and Jewish Ukrainians. Uh, we are talking about elitist group uh, groups in the, in the 19th century. But I'm very much interested in this elitist groups because uh, what they do, as uh, Benedict Anderson uh, uh, taught us, uh, they are channeling uh, the new uh, type of um, ethno-national loyalty to the greater masses. You do have people who, like Josef Zisius, like Leonid Finberg, uh, like uh, uh, the late uh, Moisei Fishbane, who were constantly telling Jews in Ukraine, we are Ukrainian Jews. Uh, many people heard that. Uh, some people follow this path, uh, but still um, it is um, a process and we are in the midst of it. Thank you. And uh, in our conversation, uh, Ukraine today was mentioned many times, not only Ukraine, but also many shtetl, small towns that uh, are located in contemporary Ukraine. And uh, of course, it's not uh, only due to your Kievan rules or close ties, ties to the country. So many of your works suggest uh, that there is urgent need to reevaluate the role of Ukraine and Ukrainians in uh, broad Jewish history. and. Uh, here I'm speaking not only about uh, your book about Shtetl, but also about your other major publications, The Anti-Imperial Choice, The Making of Ukrainian Jews, that you just mentioned, or 
uh, Jews and Ukrainians in a millennium of coexistence, co-authored with uh, Paul Robert Magocci. How would you describe the key aspect of this re-evaluation of Ukraine, which you are seeking to undertake within the field of uh, Jewish history? I would say that re-evaluation is not only about uh, Jews in Ukraine, uh, but also about uh, Jews in the Russian Empire. And uh, this um, re-evaluation, which I connect to recontextualization, really um, uh, helps um, us better to understand uh, what is going on on uh, on grassroots level uh, in different Jewish communities and with uh, Jewish individuals. You mentioned a couple of books uh, that I wrote recently. Let me start with this. Most scholars, um, most of my colleagues, when they discuss um, anything related to uh, Jewish history, when they start writing their books, articles, or giving talks, um, uh, they um, see themselves speaking to um, um, broader audience, but when they um, uh, really want to say what they are doing, they balance what they are saying against the backdrop of other scholars, of other scholars, what other scholars have written, what other scholars have said. Uh, I am doing a little bit different thing. Um, and uh, therefore, I think I have um, sometimes uh, an opportunity to reach a uh, you know, much larger audience. I am looking at what people think, what, what the lay reader understands and sees. Yesterday I was giving um, a a presentation on uh, Ukraine, nothing Jewish in my presentation, only just uh, the uh, situation uh, during uh, Russo-Ukrainian war. And um, uh, my uh, listeners, a big congregation in Montreal, um, uh, told me that well, uh, how can I talk about Ukraine in this positive light when, uh, you know, most of us people in, uh, in, in 60s, 70s associate Ukraine with rabid anti-Semitism? Um, uh, so what I can tell them um, is a different story. But my point is that uh, I'm always thinking about the bias of people um, and the uh, received wisdom that people have. So I'm uh, coming to debunk uh, um, uh, these um, uh, bias. Um, and of course, um, you can compare me to, uh, if you want, uh, to, a Don Quixote, to a Don Quixote who is um, fighting uh, the gigantic mills. Uh, I do think that uh, fighting the uh, the bias is uh, very much an a Quixotesque um, um, uh, action, but this is exactly what I'm doing. So I start uh, uh, by saying this is what most people think, and this is how their uh, um, uh, received uh, received wisdom shapes um, um, what historians, uh, some historians write, and what most people think. So, so this is exactly what I am. Uh, talking to when I'm writing my books. So when I'm writing the book Jews in the Russian Army, I know that most people think that once you are in the Russian Army, you are no more Jewish. And I'm showing that at least at least two thirds um, of the Cantonists, that is to say, uh, 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 Jew, Jewish children, Jewish underage. Um, um, uh, boys who were drafted into the Russian uh, uh, army, first and foremost into the um, uh, military schools that were called at the time uh, Cantonese battalions, um, they remain Jewish. Um, and uh, the um, uh, figure of the Jews who came through the Russian army and remain Jews is in, in, in the, um, um, I would say, 96-97%. So what I'm saying really flies in the face of what people know, what people think about Jews in the Russian army. And that comes an absolutely unexpected thing. Um, uh, so um, 
when I'm teaching, uh, let's say, when I'm giving a lecture on Jews in the Russian army at, at the uh, International Genealogical Society, uh, um, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of genealogy, but but doesn't matter. I'm coming to give a talk. I have, let's say, 300 people in the room. Um, uh, I would hardly have um, uh, this particular group if I talk about what this historian said, what that historian said. Um, I am talking to people who have this idea that, you know, once you are in the Russian army in the 19th century, you're no more Jewish. And I'm coming to tell them that's not true. Um, um, uh, the same thing is um, with uh, the... Um, uh, let's say, uh, Ukrainian uh, vector of Jewish acculturation. Nobody has been talking about that. How can you acculturate into Ukrainian um, uh, uh, peoplehood and, uh, you know, support uh, the idea of Ukrainian nationalism uh, when, um, as, you know, people's bias uh, tell us, uh, uh, you know, Ukraine had been always um, anti-Semitic and, uh, and, and, uh, um, uh, very bloody, and this um, uh, waves of uh, uh, Ukrainian revival all, always brought about uh, humongous, uh, terrific, uh, the terrible pogroms um, and uh, devastated the Jewish world. So, how can you integrate Ukrainian culture when it is, you know, uh, uh, so much uh, vitriolic, uh, so much poisoned with vitriolic anti-Semitism? And I'm saying, really. This is what you think. So let me look at a number of cases that absolutely challenge this idea. And I'm saying, well, um, you know, uh, Ukrainian revivalism is supported by a number of Jews, and these are very well-known names. So let's ask a question: Why Jews support Ukrainian revivalist movement, and what they find in in it, and why it is important for them to integrate Ukrainian culture? So um, um, I remember um, um, I was uh, uh, sitting at the conference at Barlan University, and next to me was Evgeny Sitanovsky, uh, the person who was. Um, you know, one of the big, uh, um, um, one of the big tycoons, um, uh, Ian Gazprom, uh, and he was also um, uh, at that time a very good uh, pundit, uh, political analyst, um, and uh, and I'm giving a talk about uh, Ukrainian Jews associating themselves with the Ukrainian cause after 1991. And uh, I was preaching that we should look at this, you know, Ukrainian elites who associate themselves with Ukraine. So Sidnowski turns to me and, and says, uh, this is the first time I hear about that. And, uh, you know, we are here to discuss the Russian jury and what you are doing is uh, really, um, he used this funny word, perpendicular. Uh, to, what, uh, to what we have to say. I'm saying, well, just revisit what you think, revisit what, what you know. Thank you, thank you. And uh, finally, where can our listeners go to learn more about uh, these fascinating topics? Well, I can send you the list of books, uh, but if you are um, interested in uh, what I'm doing, uh, all my books are uh, on Amazon, and uh, you can get uh, the Golden Age Shtetl, which I presented in, at Oxford, Cambridge, and the University of College London, um, um, giving lectures about this book. Um, uh, you can take a look at my Golden Age, uh, uh, excuse me, at, at my um, um, anti-imperial choice book, uh, which was awarded uh, the Encounter uh, Canadian uh, International Prize uh, last year and won uh, the... Um, 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 and, be, and it was awarded uh, by the um, 
American uh, Association of Ukrainian Studies. Um, uh, so um, there are books out there um, that uh, that you can consult, um, and uh, I believe that I'm uh, building um, kind of uh, a field of Ukrainian Jewish studies, um, um, educating new generation of scholars such as uh, uh, Artem Kharchenko and Alexei Chibutaryov. Um, uh, so um, these people, uh, these students of mine, they also produce very interesting work looking at the intersection of uh, Jewish Austrian, uh, Jewish Ukrainian, Jewish Polish history. Thank you. Thank you for uh, your time and uh, for this uh, very insightful talk you have. All the best. Thank you.